0: Morning, Church family. How are you all? Today you are not too cold. Uh, Last week people said we are cold. Uh, Welcome to those who are visiting with us and even those who are joining us online. This is Central Baptist Church. Uh, We thank God for those who have joined us. We thank God for all of you who are here. Uh, as we continue to look into God's Word. May I once again remind us of our obligation towards the coming AGM uh, to pray for the AGM to, as Baba Makoni reminded us, to send in reports but also to make the necessary nominations after praying. That the Lord will lead his work. We continue with the book of Acts. Um, We continue with the book of Acts of the Apostles. Now we are in uh, chapter 13 of the book. And chapter 13 is a watershed as we highlighted last week. It's It's a big watershed in all of what God has been doing. There is a shift from... The work that was centered around Judea, Jerusalem, and now it moves to Antioch and goes to the Gentile world, uh, from the Jewish people to the Gentile world, where Barnabas was leading, Peter was leading. Now we are seeing the prominence of Paul or Saul, and uh, but as we follow. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, we notice that he was very deliberate in what he did. He selected the strategic cities and in those strategic cities he planted churches. And then from there he went on to evangelize the surrounding areas. Hence we emphasize the fact that the New Testament church appears to have been more urban than rural. Very interesting. So, so far in Acts 13, we have seen the Holy Spirit's decision in Antioch to say, set apart for me, so and Barnabas to go and do the work for which I have called them. And so they are on the mission. We recognize that the church at Antioch also cooperated with the Holy Spirit in this work. In this work. Last week we looked at the deception at in the church at the place called Paphos, now it is on Cyprus the island by one Elymas whose rebuke and blindness led to the conversion of the Roman governor, uh, Sergius Paulus. Today we are looking at a long passage, don't be discouraged because it's a long passage uh, because it is a sermon, this is why I sometimes say when sermons are long, please allow them to be. <laughs> uh, the greater part of it is uh, is a sermon by Paul. Uh, what I called there uh, the the, uh, the disputation that he preached in uh, Antioch of Pisidia. Please take note now you probably notice that there are two Antiochs in the book of Acts. There is Antioch Syria, there is Antioch Pisidia. Um, But we also see uh, John Mark, who was part of the team, is deserting them. Now, to allay your anxieties that we will not be piecing together all the verses that have been read, uh, we will reflect and take the bigger pictures of the the text by going down verse by verse. But I will deliberately leave the application, the warning for Dr. MacCormick to finish next Sunday. So we will not cover all the way up to verse 54, uh, 52, I mean, and that is where the application of the particular passage will come. Uh, there is still application in some of the things that we will cover now even as we go through this long sermon. So like I said, our main focus is on Paul's first recorded missionary sermon, uh, which was now in Antioch, Pisidia. The structure of the passage itself has a specific way in which it is arranged and so if you wanted to do further studies, you can come up with other structures, but there is a given structure that appears. There is the setting according to the preacher, uh, or what you might want to call preparation, and then the sermon itself, the declaration that Paul was making, and then the warning or the application, and that part, the third part, we say we leave for next Sunday to be handled by Brother Leonard. The sermon itself, take note that it is outlined according to three major structural markers uh, that are found at verse 16, verse 26, and verse 38. So Makoni was saying, why have you pushed me back to, uh, instead of further, but it is to observe those markers that are there. The key phrases that are seen, you just don't miss them is men and brethren, brethren, men and brethren or brothers. uh, Those are the terms that would be used. So let's get to the text and pray that the Lord will help us. Brother Leonard did read for us, uh, so I will not read again but just go down verse by verse as the Spirit leads. Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again To look into your word, we acknowledge this one thing that the Bible is the only book in the world where we can open, and we have the author present with us to help us interpret, to help us understand. And so, we invite you to help us understand, give us spiritual eyes and ears. And Lord, even as I pray, I can hear. Not only noise from outside, but we also have noises from within. Help us to not be distracted by those and be able to be captivated by your word. For we pray and ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Pega in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We pause a little bit on that verse. You can notice that in that particular verse, up until now, Barnabas has led the missionary team. But from now on, it is no longer Barnabas and Saul, but it is now Paul and his companions. Paul and his companions, and they sailed to Pamphylia, to Pega in Pamphylia. You can see that something there happened that changed the order. Uh, you, you, You are likely to say, What is it that changed the order? According to the way the words are arranged, it looks like the next verse is almost like the logical explanation to why the order changed. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. As to why John Mark left the group and returned to Jerusalem, we are not told. But it did lead to a severe and unfortunate break between Paul and Barnabas sometime later, Uh, when now Barnabas was saying when they were coming on the second missionary journey let us take him and they said no you cannot you find the record in Acts chapter 15 so something must have happened here Uh, there are several possibilities that are given but I must come up front that it is speculation there are several possibilities why John Mark left the team. Uh, We cannot be dogmatic about any of the reasons that we may offer. However, that is the record of scripture. Perhaps that can help us understand why even in the leadership there was a change on who was now taking prominence. People suggest that, well, John Mark must have been a very young man and perhaps he was homesick. He said, hey, where am I going like this? Let me go back home. But some have said John Mark may have grown timid at the thought of crossing over the Taurus Mountains or he became nervous about the possibility of meeting bandits. You know that in 2 Corinthians Chapter 11 verse 26, Paul testifies of having been exposed to the threats of bandits. Could it be? John Mark may have had, maybe he was a little disgruntled at Paul taking over leadership of the team in place of John Mark's cousin because Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. Maybe that acted him the wrong way. But since John Mark was also a Jewish Christian from Jerusalem, he probably did not like the conversion of that Roman aristocrat, Sagius Paulus. And how do you arrive at that conclusion? The fact that when he was returning, he did not go back to the church at Antioch where they had launched off, but he went all the way to Jerusalem, why are you not reporting to the church that had sent? Perhaps that could have caused him to say, nah, I can't be doing this. Or the signal of direct mission to the Gentiles following the conversion of Sergius Paulus might have brought unhappiness to him. But for whatever reason, Paul was unwilling to take him again on the second missionary journey. In any case, whatever the cause for his departure, we cannot know for sure. But what is encouraging is that later on, Paul and John Mark seem to have reconciled. Because when you read in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, Verse 11, ah, this is the same Paul now who is telling young Timothy, please bring along with you John Mark, for he is very useful to me. I'm glad that we can we can misunderstand each other, but we can reconcile. Hello, we can still see how each other, the other person is useful to me, even though we may misunderstand one another at one point or other. Is that not an encouragement? <laughs> that is a wonderful encouragement. Let's move on to verse 14. Now John Mark has left, but they went on from Pega and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Again, you notice something very, that is very interesting here. Paul had been called specifically to be a missionary to the Gentiles. But how ironic that whenever he moved into the city, he went to a Jewish synagogue first. You would ask why? Well, he knew he would get a hearing from the Jews in the synagogue. And this was the logical first place to start. He had a personal burden for his people as he would speak in the book of Romans chapter 9. He would pray that they would not perish. He wants them to know the Lord. Chapter 9, uh, verse 1 to verse 3 and even chapter 10, verse 1. He wanted this nation to hear the word of God so that they would have no excuse. Remember, after he is rejected perhaps by these uh, Jewish people, then he would move to the Gentiles. So, you, yeah, you come across this verse and he says, yeah, why is he going into the synagogue and he is sitting down there? Well, he knew where to start. Uh, so, what happened in the synagogue? Verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. That's interesting. Uh, the, it looks like this. there was a service in the synagogue. And the service included several things. Uh, the reading from the Torah and the, some prayers. The reciting of the Shema. All of those activities were, were happening. But when all of those had happened, the rulers or the leaders of the synagogue recognized the distinguished and learned character of the guests who were sitting in there. And then they invited them to speak and their invitation is very specific. If you have any word of encouragement, say it. I don't know. Maybe some people would like to even suggest perhaps Paul was putting on his rabbinical robes. How did they just quickly identify? Uh, but remember he was a member of the Sanhedrin himself. He was a Pharisee so they expected him to share a word of encouragement. So to encourage them Paul goes on this is now when Paul is beginning his sermon. His sermon is encouraging these people who have received them. That's why our title today is received even by the Gentiles in antioch But what does he do? He goes on to review Israel's history and climaxing with the ministry of John the Baptist. And the coming of the Messiah. Basically what Paul will be saying is. It was God who was at work in Israel. And for Israel. He was at work in Israel. He was at work for Israel. Preparing the way for the coming Messiah. The one whom God had promised. But Israel had not always been faithful to the Lord. And his covenant. So listen to him as he speaks. Man of Israel verse 16. And you who fear God. Listen. I hope you are not getting tired. God, the God of this people Israel. Take note the highlighted words. The God of this people Israel. Chose our forefathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he got up, he put up with them and in the, in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Maybe I need to to pause a little bit before I move on. Uh, there There is a clear explanation why Paul would talk about 450 when we know that it was 400 in the in Egyptian slavery but some of these 50 years were included the march including the possession of the land so that's why he uses that statement but I don't want to stay on there. there is something that attracts my attention in these few verses. Take note, in this first sermon, first missionary sermon, Paul declares something that we all need to know whenever we think about the gospel of God's grace. He declares that God is in sovereign control of history. God is the one who is in charge of mankind history. And Israel had a unique place in that history. That's what he is basically saying. Notice the verbs that are attributed to God as the one who is the sole actor in the affairs of man. Not only in the affairs of men, but specifically in Israel's history. God you are still looking at those words. I highlighted some of them. What are they? God chose God prospered them God led them. God endured or he put up with their rebellion basically. He he put up with them. God overthrew the other kings and then God gave. Who is the main actor in history? It's not you and me, it's not uh, associations, it's not organizations. The main actor in history is not Putney, is not Obama, is not Biden, is not our president. The main actor in history is God. That is what he is putting home here. You know, uh, when we have gone to school, when we have done some work, when we have built a house, when we have had our children, we say, I did, I did, I did. A child of God knows that they are not at the center of things. It is God. When you get a promotion at work when you do this when you whatever has happened is it you it is God this is what gives us the understanding that whenever things have happened to us we say by the grace of God it is only the grace of God that has led us this far and Paul having been asked to encourage these people he begins on the sovereign control of God in history and particularly in the history Of Israel. I like that. Verse 21. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul. The son of Kish. A man of the tribe of Benjamin. For 40 years. And when he had removed him. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. God's work in history is not haphazard. God's work in history is directed towards a specific end, it is going towards a specific direction. And that direction is leading to the Messiah. So, as Paul touches on that long history of the children of Israel, he talks about the judges, Samuel, so but he lands on David. It was God. The God who sent Moses to deliver people out of Egypt is the same God who sent David. You see, apart from the deliverance from Egypt, the raising up of David as king after God's own heart is the most gracious act of God in the Old Testament. It is. That's why I highlighted those words. God gave them. God had then removed Saul, and then he raised up David. He raised up David. Verse 23. 25 and of this man's offspring is now talking David God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus as he promised before his coming John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel and as John was finishing his course he said what do you suppose that I am I am not he no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose foot feet I am not worthy to untie. I say, please take note how God deals with people. And as the sole actor in the affairs of men, he is not going in any direction. He is trying to lead all of us to one end. You know, brothers, that even the calling of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, when God made that specific promise to say, I will make you into a great nation, it was not simply to end perhaps in the days of Solomon or in the days of David. It was to end with us all having become children of Abraham by faith. That great nation was to come as the son of Jesse would give lead us to the Savior Jesus Christ. This is why I said it begins there in the Exodus with the children of Israel coming out. But it leads all the way, starting with Moses, all the way climaxing in John the Baptist who is declaring that this is the one to whom all the prophets and the law were pointing to, he is now here. And I would like to say, as much as we will talk about the politics of our nation, as much as we will talk about the economic difficulties that we have, we can start talking with people on that end. But let us lead them to the one source that helps, the one source that serves, is leading them to the Lord, to Jesus. So what is his argument? He is basically saying God sent Moses, God sent David, and God sent Jesus, the Messiah. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets who was commissioned to proclaim the repentance and baptism there. That work ended with the actual Savior coming onto the scene and John himself was the first to acknowledge and say, this is the one whom I talked about. I am not the one. He is the one. So As David was Jesse's son, Jesus is God's son. Now what Paul is doing, if he would end that message, if he would end that message and simply say, well, Jesus is God's son, it is still incomplete because our salvation is not simply based on the fact that Jesus is God's son. But it is based on what this son of God did. What did he do? He died. In our place. He died for our sins. He was buried. If that had remained like that, he would have been conquered. But he rose from the dead. The resurrection surely put a seal to the salvation that we now hold on to as ours. So Paul Simon presses on to the crucifixion, to the burial, to the resurrection, and even the eyewitness reports to affirm the truth and the meaning of the gospel. Listen to how he goes on verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us who have been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. Uh, As Paul addressed both Jews and Gentiles he calls them God-fearers who were in that congregation he moves to a very distinct subject, the offer of salvation. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Let's move on to verse 28. And though they found him, in him no guilt worth of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. Not again, although the leaders in Jerusalem had actually read and heard the message of the prophets, they still rejected and crucified the nation's Messiah. Why? Not because they did not read, not because they did not hear, but because they did not understand the message. That's the point here. In condemning Jesus, the people of Jerusalem were actually fulfilling the words that the prophets had proclaimed. And these words, they were reading them every day, every Sabbath in the synagogue. Just like what had been read even on that day before Paul stood up to preach. He is basically saying, you guys, you keep hearing these words every day. Sabbath day. But you don't make the connection. You miss the connection of what the prophets were talking about. So because they did, they missed the connection, God gave them the Messiah and they eliminated him. They gave him over to Pilate and say he be crucified and everything. But God raised him. That changes the whole subject. But God raised him from the dead. That message is powerful. The word "raised" there means brought him up. In a, in this way, Paul has now declared the gospel, the word of this salvation, the glad tidings. From now on, we will always understand when we say, "Tell us about the gospel." The gospel has to at least. Be fourfold if you like. Uh, like we, when you read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The message is very clear. What is it? Jesus died or he was crucified depending on what you choose. Jesus died. He was buried. And then he was raised from the dead. And he was seen by witnesses. That's what First Corinthians chapter 15 would testify as the gospel is. And basically what he has done is to move history with the people. And now narrow that history to the work that Jesus did. So we come to the last reading. Verse 32 to 37 for today. And we bring to you the good news. That what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us their children. By raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son today. I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption or decay. Why? Verse 36. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So you can can get wound up in all the quotations of Psalm 2, Isaiah, and Psalm 16, that the apostle is making. But what is his point? His point is through the psalmist God had made these promises to to David to say he will give him the sure blessing of David that he is the son of God whom he has begotten that he will not see decay. But when you come to verse 36, David then, uh, Paul then says, ah, but after David had saved his generation, he died and he slept with his fathers. So has God's word fallen short of its promise? No. Understand that Paul is addressing a synagogue congregation. He supported his argument by appealing to the Old Testament scriptures, quoting specifically Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, and Psalm 16, verse 10. God kept his promise. The gospel has come, and the signature of that promise rests in The word called resurrection. The signature of that promise is resting on the fact that God did not allow Jesus to see decay. The promise that was given to David who died and decayed is fulfilled in this one who is the son of David because God raised him from the God's promise of resurrection to David had actually been fulfilled in Jesus, his greater son. Rather than waiting for some future resurrection day when David along with all the other righteous Jews would be raised from the dead. These specific promises from the Old Testament text have already been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The father has provided for his children. He has delivered on his promise that he had made hundreds of years to their forefathers. This for Paul is a word of encouragement. Remember, they had said, if you have any word of encouragement, encourage us. Say it now. This is the word of encouragement. How are they being encouraged? You are not the primary actors in the history of man. God is. He is the one who chose. He is the one who delivered. He is the one who endured. He is the one who raised. But ultimately, he gave you a savior. He gave you a savior. How was that savior given? He was given in the person of Jesus Christ. How is he our Savior? Because he took our place by dying on the cross. And he conquered that cross. He conquered the grave as he was raised from the dead. I am sure as the congregation listened to Paul speak, they saw the faithfulness of God. They saw the sinfulness of men. They saw God's solution to man's problem by sending Jesus. What needs to happen is to ask the question, what shall we do then? There ought to be a response to that which God has done for all of us. As much as we were reflecting on God being the sole actor in the history of man and specifically in the history of Israel, God is still the sole actor in your history, in the history of this land. We are alive today. We are where we are today because God has been leading and orchestrating things and he wants us to come to the Savior. The people's response is usually, yes, we have heard, but let's wait and see. The warning is coming. Do not harden your heart. Respond to that. I will leave that to Brother Makoni, who will lead us in that particular section. But even as we end today, brothers and sisters, the point of Paul's sermon is not to prove the resurrection from scripture, but to prove that Jesus Christ has fulfilled Old Testament Davidic promises. And as such, he is the one who offers salvation and justification to those who believe. A to those who believe. He qualifies to be the one who offers salvation to those who believe. Buzi ya yasekuru lako, buru, rasekuru lako, kwai, rasekuru hariko harikoniku visazuri. No kutaharizi murungwa kwa mari. Oh by the way, the goat, the sheep, the buru from your ancestors, will not qualify to take away sin. It is not in God's grand plan. There is only one Savior who can take away sin. Jesus Christ, whom God planned to send to the world before the foundation of the world. You are where you are today, and God has continued to give you life so that somehow you may hear the message of this Savior who loved you so much, and he came He is the fulfillment of all that God has been doing. God is not about to bring a new world order that they are telling us, which we know is disorderly. He is bringing a real order by making you right with God. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would and allow personal, direct, individual application of this message that Paul preached long time back, but that it would speak to us today, in our various circumstances, in our particular place. And we pray, Lord, that we may cooperate with you in your sovereign work in human history, We pray, Lord, that as you write your story in the city of Harare, as you write your story in Zimbabwe and in the world, may we be faithful pencils in your hand as we allow you to move these pencils to serve you for your glory and even for the good of your people. We bless you for this time. In the name of Jesus. Amen.